This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The Economists. I'm Peter Martin. And I'm Gigi Foster. Hello. Today in our special election series, we're tackling the tricky one, the topic that's now bubbling up above the surface. We are bringing in over 600,000 people a year into the country, 190,000 permanent residents, around about 350,000 student visa holders, 90,000 457 visa holders, then you have all the other visa holders on top of that again. It equates to the number of people we're increasing a year around about the size of Canberra. That's Pauline Hanson, who tearfully lost one of her candidates this week, saying that immigration is a potent political issue. Although, Gigi, her numbers are out. The figures do show uh, 530,000 arrivals a year, which is much more than the population of my city of Canberra, by the way. Hmm. They also show 290,000 departures per year, and many of them people who've been arrivals. So to add them all up, as she's done, it's a bit like uh, on a seashore, uh, adding up the distance that waves move in uh, without taking account of the distance waves move out, immigration moves backwards and forwards. Nonetheless, she is on to a concern and has been on to it uh, for 20 years. It's becoming bigger. The uh, Lowy Institute poll, the most recent one, found that a majority of Australians now believe that immigration is too high. The ABC's Vote Compass uh, found similar uh, for the coalition voters. Uh, almost half of coalition voters believe immigration is too high. Among Labor voters, though, uh, it's only two in ten, which is odd, Gigi. Mm. We're immigrants. I one am. in four of us. You are. <laughs> yep. And one in four of us was actually born overseas. Uh, one in two of us, that uh, includes uh, your children, has uh, an overseas parent or, or was themselves born overseas. What's going on? Why is it that a nation of immigrants mm. is increasingly disliking immigration? <laughs> well, look, I mean, it does have to do with this idea of national identity. I mean, there is such a thing as Australian values. Uh, you have them, I have them. and and, now. and we like other people to have them too when they come here, right? And it sort of reminds me of one of my favourite sci-fi programmes, a particular society that I think we have a clip from. We are the Borg. Lower your shields and surrender your ships. We will add your biological and technological distinctiveness to our own. Your culture will adapt to service us. Resistance is futile. Right. You will be assimilated, right? I mean, Australia is unapologetically, it's a stable Western social democracy with values that we indoctrinate into our children from an early age. And immigrants... When they come to our shores as adults, they haven't been educated here, so it's harder for them, but we do expect some assimilation. We, we mm. want to see immigrants coming to the sausage sizzles and barracking for Australia at the Olympics, really being part of what we consider as us. So that's why that Liberal candidate this week uh, has recanted from his views ex expressed in many articles and Facebook posts that uh, Muslims, he, he said, no, no matter uh, what they say, they will never be 
assimilated. Oh, this is really beyond is, economics, no. isn't it? Well, there, is, yeah, there's culture. I mean, I think culture as an economist, I think of culture as an outgrowth of economic realities. I still celebrate Thanksgiving with my children every year. I have done since I came Halloween? here. What about Halloween? You, no, you, I don't do Halloween just because I think it's mainly about, you know, candy and consumerism. But Thanksgiving is, is about family and connection. And yeah, look, it's definitely a cultural thing, but it's not just about culture, right? A lot of people's concerns in this election um, that they're raising about immigration really are fears about the negative economic effects of immigration, right? People worry that immigration is depressing wages, that it's taking people's jobs, that it's pushing up house prices, crowding cities, making neighborhoods less safe. Um, and today, the whole idea of this uh, this episode is we're going to look at each of these claims and a whole lot more of, of how immigrants affect our economy and try to work out whether we would actually, you know, have an economic reason to be worried. There may well be other reasons, as you've said, but all we can assess, all we have the uh, the tools to assess, are these claims about uh, wages and so on. As a professor of economics, you're well-placed to do that. As an economics editor, I've, I've lived and breathed the reporting of these issues. We'll be joined later by an economist who's working on this issue for the Committee for the Economic Development of Australia. There'll be a major report in the middle of the year. Can I first, if you like, stake a claim, just as you've staked a claim for uh, uh, Australian values, <laughs> I am sick to death of people talking about this in terms of the costs and benefits for pre-existing Australians. Yes, that's a lens to look at it, but immigration has two parties, right? It has the immigrants. Immigration benefits immigrants. Now, that's definitional, right? I mean, they, they wouldn't <laughs> They wouldn't try come to here <laughs> if they didn't think they were going to get benefits. Yep. And they matter too. And by the way, it benefits immigrants hugely, usually, in terms of uh, just income alone. Now, it might mm. be that at the end of this sort of discussion, trying to work out the, the costs and benefits of immigration, it might be that we decide it makes not much difference to Australia's standard of living per person, a bit higher, some places a bit, a bit lower. But we should always remember that it makes a huge difference to the standards of the people moving. I mean, Australia is a country, a sovereign country, a nation that has to be setting policies to try to benefit itself. But the key thing to think about is Australia itself changes over time. Australia today is made up of people who were immigrants 20 years ago or, or 10 years ago, right? So the notion of what Australia is, it is abstract. It's not the people who are here right now, right? So when we make policy, we want to think about the best thing we can get for Australia as it will be in a generation or two ah, or You're three. saying not us. In the same way as we look, look at climate change, we look at it not just what's good for us. And if we were looking at it just what's good for us, we'd pollute like no tomorrow. Yeah. We look at it at what's good for the future us. Yeah, and it's basically everyone who is in that path that we can that we can see in the horizon for the country. You know, the economics view of, of immigration is that free movement of people allows those paths to be optimized. So if we allow people to move wherever they want, whatever countries they want, just like we allow money to move wherever it wants, free trade and all that, then everybody should be better off because there's that freedom and economic resources flow to, including, you know, human capital resources embodied in people, they flow to the area where they are most needed, where the highest returns are. So free trade, which is uh, almost a you know Bible text among economists, that if people can buy and sell things from whoever they want, on the whole, over time, they'll be better off. Mm -hmm. Immigration is no more than that. It's just free trade in addresses. Pretty much. Let's look at the issues starting with labour. 
This is what Tony Abbott had to say in the speech about immigration at the Sydney Institute last year. I'll, I'll quote. It is a basic law of economics that increasing the supply of labour depresses wages. Gigi, what's wrong with that? Yeah, so, I mean, mm. the problem is it's only half the equation, half the Again. market, right? Immigrants are working. Yeah, they, they work. They take jobs. But they also spend their wages. And when they spend, that feeds more demand into our markets here in Australia for our goods and services. Can you give a practical example? Sure. Well, when I first came here in 2003, I came to Adelaide with my young children and husband. And, you know, we came, we did ship a few things over from the U.S. where the kids were born. But in the main, we bought things in Adelaide to establish our, our household. So we bought lots of furniture, we bought kitty toys, you know, easel sets and ping pong table and that sort of stuff. And that spending, it, it is an infusion into aggregate demand, what we call aggregate demand, that, that benefits the whole Australian economy. So we've because got two things, supply of labour and demand for labour and your example is actually what the evidence shows, which is that the, the big impact that immigrants have first is on buying somewhere to live and on buying something to furnish it because yep. you, you don't bring your furnishings, right? No, exactly. But you've got supply of labour and demand for labour and that immigrants, or indeed any population growth, I suppose, uh, new babies, uh, fuel both. No, sure, of course. And, and what's happening is signals are sent to the companies and suppliers that says, oh, we need to invest more, hire more people in order to make this furniture that people are now demanding. And that's, that's economic growth 101. I want to give a example that I've, uh, I've used in the newspaper, which uh, I think makes the end result clearer, even if you can't uh, see that supply and demand thing. The argument is that smaller populations mean uh, more people in jobs or, or higher wages. Take this thought experiment, right? Imagine Australia, draw a line on the uh, Queensland Northern Territory border, cut it off at Victoria. So you've divided Australia in two. You've got Queensland, New South Wales, they're half the population. You've got the, the other states, the other half. Um, Australia would be smaller, it would have fewer workers. Would its wages be much different? Would its unemployment rate be much different? Now, the, the Productivity Commission examined, uh, if you like, all of the studies on this, on uh, effects on wages. The international evidence, it found, and I'll quote, uh, only small, either positive or negative, effects on wages. In other words, could be either direction, but small. It uh, did some modelling of Australia and found a negligible impact but just because increasing the population doesn't make much difference to wages or much difference to unemployment, that doesn't mean it doesn't make some workers worse off. Sure. And others, it makes me better off. I'm an editor, right? Sure. Uh, more readers helps me, but it might hurt other people in industries. Uh, the IT industry might be one where, where you've got people coming from overseas uh, and they have more competition. So I, I don't think we should discount completely that concern. Sure, sure. And there's always going to be competition in, in any healthy labour market, whether it's with immigrants or other workers who, who are already here, right? Wel welcome to the realities of life. But Australia uses strategic skills lists in our skilled migration program. So we prioritise immigrants who have skills that are comparatively scarce and this reduces competition with existing residents. And, and actually the skills list is very broad, everything from bricklayers and cafe managers to surgeons. Yeah, so, although I know of a hairdresser who came in. <laughs> there so. we go. And I'm not, not wishing to disparage that. All right, next one, house prices. Yep, what about them? They're falling, thank God. 
Ah, uh, yes, but immigrants are pushing them up, uh, Gigi. Um, <laughs> well, okay, so, immig- used to be. so immigrants buying places to live is, is very different from foreign investors who have no plans to be owner-occupiers who are, or, you know, have been bidding up Australian housing prices. That's another issue entirely. But of course it's true that if we have more people of any sort, whether they're immigrants or not, then that means we need more housing, right? And it takes time to build residential buildings and the infrastructure like roads and railways to connect them. And sometimes the timing is off and demand exceeds supply, even for years at a stretch, and that can push prices up. So minimizing that kind of problem is one of the major goals of urban planning. So the onus is on the states to build infrastructure. They're playing catch up. If you look at New South Wales, there were years when, uh, just after the Olympics actually, when uh, the New South Wales government spent virtually nothing Mm. on roads and so on, and the place did get more congested. Its population did rise, right? And now, as anyone who lives in Sydney knows, they're building anywhere and that'll make things better for a while. And it's not to say that uh, there aren't problems resulting from increases in population. I guess the way I look at it, Gigi, is um, I remember Australia being half or uh, maybe 60% of its present uh, size. And I don't remember the standard of living or amenity being that much worse. Now, it's quite different. Mm. That, that's an overall thing. It's quite different to people feeling that it's taking them longer to get into work or uh, house prices are going up. They're going up for other reasons, tax changes to do with negative gearing and, and so on had mm. um, a lot to do with it. You're listening to The Economists with Gigi Foster and me, Peter Martin. We're looking at the economics of immigration an election issue which is now driving votes. Joining us now is someone who's preparing a major report on the changes in Australia's immigration program due for release in the middle of the year, economist Gabriela D'Souza from the Committee for Economic Development of Australia, or CEDA. Hi, Gabriela. Hi, Gigi. Hi, Peter. Do you know, I met my Australian husband at the Committee for Economic Development, or CED, in Washington, D.C., 25 years ago, when I was working no as way. his research assistant. Yep, yep. So <laughs> CEDA is the Australian branch of CED, right? And that's yes, why we yeah, have this particular right. immigration. Yeah. <laughs> if it weren't for, for CEDA or an organisation like it, I wouldn't be here. There we go. So, Gabriella, <laughs> can I, can I uh, take you back to one of the first points we raised, this contention that immigration costs local jobs and wages. It almost certainly can't be true at an overall level in aggregate over time, but among particular groups of Australians, maybe it's true. Can you tell us what does the evidence show? So, the evidence uh, for Australia is from the Breunig Deutsche paper that was included in the Migrant Intake Review conducted by the Productivity Commission. But they found that there was, when they looked at a variety of indicators of the labour market, including earnings, hours worked, participation rate and unemployment, they found no evidence that immigrants um, had harmed natives or incumbents' outcomes in the labour market. Over how many different skill groups or types of jobs? So they looked at broad skill groups and over, over the different skill groups in aggregate, they found no effect. Mm-hmm. So that it could be true that in some cases there might be people who are worse off. But as Gigi rightly mentioned, we have a system of very controlled skilled intake. We have a skilled occupation list that gets revised and that is quite is theoretically responsive to the needs of the economy. And so if we find that there's an oversupply of workers in a given 
occupation that might not feature on the skilled occupation list for the following year. So can you can you give us an overview of the kind of categories of different types of immigration and you know how many we're taking in roughly in each category and how that's changed I guess recently. So our immigration intake target uh, viewed differently in different circles, but it's um, it used to be 190K, so 190,000 people, and that's split across uh, family migrants, skilled migrants, and humanitarian. So skilled makes up a large proportion of that migration intake, mm-hmm. almost 70 to 80%. That increase has mostly been between 2000 and 2006. We had a large uptick in that intake, and that was when it overtook the number of family migrant visas. And the skilled people, they're coming in generally at younger ages, right? So under 45 and with, with these, you know, the sort of readiness to work in Australia to push up demand as we were just talking about, right? Yes. And through our skilled migration system, uh, we do that through a points-based system. So if you are between a certain age group, I think it's 25 to 34, you get a higher number of points that's added towards your final assessment on whether or not you're fit to migrate to Australia. But Labour wants to loosen that sort of emphasis, heavy emphasis on skilled migration, right, to make family reunions easier. And, and it also has a policy to increase the number of humanitarian visas. Is that right? Yes. So my understanding of the Labour policy is they're trying to target the long-stay parent visa, which is still a long-stay temporary visa. And they want to uncap that, whereas the current policy is capped at about 15,000 places. From an economic point of view, or is economics uh, the wrong way to look at it, is that a good idea? I can understand why people who want to get their parents here will vote for it, of course. From an economics point of view, there is an argument to be made that the welfare of the migrant, of the permanent migrant, is important. You know, the skilled migrant who wants to bring their parents over or the migrant that's here that's settled that wants to bring their parent over. You know, it could make them a better worker. It could make them more happy. Uh, Welfare of migrants is important. But I think on another angle, you know, there is a social element to that. So we have different levels of my, or we have different categories of migration, and those are important for the reasons that we've outlined within them. I'm not a huge fan of assessing family migrants by the same metrics that we assess economic migrants or migrants who are skilled. So as a, as a university worker, let me ask you uh, a different question about this, this relevant migration. So what's the connection between sort of our educational export services and, uh, and our visas and immigration program? So in about the 2000s, we started to develop a stronger link between education and being able to apply for a permanent resident or a temporary work visa after you graduate. Uh, So for example, at the moment, we have a post-work study visa called the subclass 485 that allows anyone that's done a university degree and above to be able to stay in the country after they graduate for a period of time. And then even before that, we would privilege, by way of the point system, uh, students who had done their degree in Australia. So they would get more points added to your application. Does this mean that universities are, if you like, um, part of the immigration process? That is to say, you enrol in a university or in a technical college and then you get special points that make it easier to immigrate and there, if you like... um, well, I wouldn't go so far as to call them prostitutes uh, selling what's allegedly education but really is seen by the people buying it as, uh, as a ticket into Australia. Universities and technical colleges, they're, they're no longer just teaching. They're an inter- become in the last uh, 10, 15 years an integral part of the immigration system. 
Universities and training centres have definitely benefited from the fact that we've uh, become more open to migration. Um, I think the most recent estimate that I saw for the value of that industry as an export is $34.3 billion. And universities do deliver skills that are important in the labour force, but they have definitely benefited. And we have seen an uptick in those international student numbers. Is it unusual on a a global scale that a a country has, if you like, turned over some of its uh, immigration function to uh, higher education institutions that sort of act as a filter? From what I've seen, Perhaps not to the extent that we do. I, but keeping in mind too that you know when you look at the numbers, uh, in the student visa transitions from international students, there's about twenty percent that transition to a permanent visa. But that is keeping in mind that we do have a two-step process. So they might go from a student visa to a temporary visa and then to a permanent visa. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, It is a large component um, and we are seeing a rise in the number of people who are onshore that make an application to become a permanent resident. So there there is a very strong link there still. So let's go to another policy proposal. So the coalition has said it wants to modify the permanent migration program to migrants so that they have incentives to live in regional locations. So Prime Minister Scott Morrison with Immigration Minister Alan Tudge has been talking about diverting migrants away from Sydney and Melbourne and toward places that have uh, the, the capacity capacity, so-called. Here's how he puts it. So in Western Australia, where they want more people, they can. In South Australia, where they want more people, they can. In Tasmania, in Northern Territory, in North Queensland. And what Alan and I and others are working on is how we can best direct people to go into those parts of the country where they're really looking to see more people. So that's the Prime Minister there in a speech he gave about uh, about this issue last year and infrastructure, cities and population. What do you think about that, Gabriella? Uh, personally, I'm not a fan of that policy, um, and I think part of this goes to a broader problem that we have with immigration policy, where there's such a lack of an evidence base when it comes to making these, what I would call, knee-jerk policy decisions around it. For example, even the, the government's own report noted that there's about 26,000 vacancies in regional areas. But if you go and look at the capital cities, the vacancy rate for Sydney is 55,000. Vacancy rate in Melbourne is 45,000 and other capital cities are similar. So there's a reason why people are choosing to go to the cities and that's because that's where a lot of the job growth has happened. Um, with this move to try and get people to go to the regions, you know, where are they going to work? Are they going to be product- as productive as if we had allowed them to just live in the cities? You know, and we should also keep in mind, you know, going to Peter's point that he made earlier, you know, the welfare of migrants is important and they should have agency over the decisions that they choose to make, where they choose to work, what they choose to do through our migration program. And in fact, this is a broader economic point, right, that we should let people at the coalface who have all of the information required to optimize their investments and their, their selection of how to invest resources be the ones who make the choices rather than being directed by some overarching regulatory body that actually doesn't have eyes on all of those details, right? Like whether, you know, Rockhampton is, you know, a better place for an immigrant to go, the immigrant can see whether or not there's a job in Rockhampton for him, right, right. versus in Sydney. So he should be the one empowered to make that choice. Yeah. That's exactly right.
And it's actually an anti-immigration argument, I suppose, to say that immigrants should be restricted in where they move because that's what an anti-immigration <laughs> argument is. Right? Well, actually, some ex-USSR uh, countries do that, right? I mean, in Ukraine, oh, yes. you, know, you have to have a permission to move, right? That kind of policy is seen by economists as extremely restricting of growth. It would be going too far, perhaps, to call Australia North Korea, but... Um, you know, that, that would be that, too that, far, that, Peter. <laughs> yes, that would be. <laughs> so, uh, so the the classic argument that we hear um, from some pundits about how, you know, immigrants are going to take our jobs and whatnot, that is countered by this argument about how well they're going to spend, they're going to increase aggregate demand. So let's go to the extreme of that position, which is the implication that when unemployment is higher or going up, that we should actually respond to that by boosting immigration rather than cutting it. And, and this is, in fact, what the Hawke government did during the 1980s. So is this a reasonable policy, do you think, Gabriela? I think it, it could be. You know, we've seen in the past where unemployment is higher, there has been an injection of migrants and we have been able to normalise economic growth. Indeed, as a country, we've been really lucky. And part of the reason for that, for our avoiding a economic recession in the last 27 years, has been because we've allowed migrants, the relative free movement of migrants. On the whole, our migration system works pretty well. There might be ways that we can tinker it to make it better. But I think, you know, it's the envy of the world. We are able to attract clever people and it's focused on skills. And we're able to also supplement that with um, temporary migrants who are able to fill up short-term skill shortages. Could immigration help us in this demographic transition we're having as we become much older fairly quickly? Yeah. And when we look at other countries, you know, Germany, Japan, they've all had negative population growth. And that's kind of worrying for those economies because they are aging quite rapidly. So whether we like it or not, <laughs> we do need a certain amount of population growth to be able to look after the dependence that we have in the future. So could it be that there's actually a, a potentially a double dividend from immigration? On the one hand, we can help to kind of bolster our falling fertility rates, you know, non, non-replacement uh, baby-making rates. But also when people come here and get jobs and, and contribute to the economy, often some of the wages they earn are actually sent back to their their home countries, right? Is remittances, so basically people, immigrants here in Australia who send money back to, say, you know, Africa, India, China, is that actually a way to help developing economies very, very directly and in a targeted fashion? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, and that's something that often gets overlooked. Um, you know, remittances are, an estimate I read was that it was three times the global national aid budget. So if you take all of the aid budgets of countries over the world, remittances was three times the value of that. So it's a really effective way of being able to help people who can't migrate, who have those place-based restrictions on them, who are not lucky enough. I know personally, my, my family, my dad migrated to the UAE in the 70s and he was able to support his family back home in India and they were all able to make great lives for themselves because uh, him and his siblings were able to go out and make money. Can I ask the ultimate economic question, which is okay. <laughs> if immigration is so good, immigration mm -hmm. we're saying is as good as free trade, why not have more of it? Why not open our borders? Why not open all of the world's borders? Is there a reason to even have a limit? I think the reason is, again, mostly political. So, we, you know, we have a democracy, we have a system of government that gives people a voice. And I think people in general do not want to have to have or live in a society where they feel like things are changing more f and faster than they'd like. But, you know, th there have been studies to show that 
if we were to reduce the barriers to immigration, you know, world incomes could increase by one and a half times what they are right now. Do you mean they um, could almost double? Yes, they could very much almost double. Um, and how does that compare with the benefits of any other policy, say uh, total free trade? It does not compare. I think the benefits from total total free trade are much lower. I, there are a few um, percentage points, actually, there are a few versus percentage, yeah. 50 to 100% increase in... In world GDP. That's exactly right. You've been listening to The Economists with Gigi Foster, me, Peter Martin, and our special guest, Gabriella D'Souza, Senior Economist for the Committee for the Economic Development of Australia. Gabrielle, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Peter. Thank you, Gigi. We'll put links to the economics of immigration on our website. And thanks to our listeners so much for your feedback over these past few weeks. Uh, You can continue to comment via The Economist webpage or Peter's Twitter account. That's at one, numeral one, Peter Martin. So at one, Peter Martin. Next week, climate change and energy. We know you care about it. We know you care about whether the lights are going to be on and whether we're going to be able to cut emissions. And I want to know, Gigi, will I be forced to buy an electric car? (laughs) (laughs) Goodbye till then. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.